0: Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 130. I am your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on October 15th, 2023, in Austin, Texas. We are telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without presentism. So we're back on the timeline. We've been heavy on sidebars in the last month, in part because I've been out of Austin for something like eight of the last 12 weeks, and sidebars are easier to do without having a huge pile of books at hand. Some of you tell me you enjoy the sidebars, and for the rest of you, relief is at hand. We are again in New Netherland. For a fleeting moment, it is 1626. Roughly as Peter Minhui is transacting for Manhattan Island along a trail that ran the length of the island, for much of it along today's 2nd Avenue. A small group of Wickwaskek Indians came south to trade furs. A group of Europeans, presumably a mix of men of the many ethnicities who were already gravitating to the territory of the Dutch West India Company, attacked the Indians and killed them, leaving only a 12-year-old boy alive. Considering only cause and effect and by no means right and wrong, a great many people would die because those robbers let that boy live. It's now the early 1640s. East to west, the territory of New Netherland in principle extends from the Connecticut River, the Dutch call it the Fresh River, to the Delaware River, which the Dutch call the South River. North to south, New Netherland stretches from the area of Albany, New York, on the Hudson, all the way down to Cape May, New Jersey. Staten Island and western Long Island were also within its jurisdiction. The biggest town is New Amsterdam, which houses at most a few hundred non-Indians. Population estimates for New Netherland vary widely, but in all of this considerable territory... The total European population probably does not much exceed 2,000 people. By comparison, there are 300 Europeans in Providence and Aquidneck Island, a few hundred in Maryland around St. Mary's City, and around 1,000 in each of New Hampshire and Plymouth Colony. But there are more than 10,000 English in Virginia and as many as 20,000 in the territory of the Massachusetts Bay. Demographics are decidedly against the Dutch, many of whom aren't even actually Dutch. In New Amsterdam, there were at least a dozen languages spoken by 1641, and another account claimed 18. Within the time it takes for an American to have a child and get him off the parental health insurance, New Netherland would cease to exist as a thing even if its influence on American language and culture would persist even to the present day. However thinly populated, there were tiny settlements and independent farms scattered throughout the region by the early 1640s. Fort Orange, in today's Albany, had been the vital link to the Mohawks in 1624, and it conferred control of the Hudson, North River, all the way down to New Amsterdam. Fort Nassau on the east bank of the Delaware at the site of today's Gloucester, New Jersey, and not to be confused with a Fort Nassau near Albany that had been replaced by the better located Fort Orange, had been founded in 1621 and would stand until 1651. Across the Hudson from Manhattan, there were settlements or plantations in what would become New Jersey, at Pavonia, Jersey City, Liberty State Park, Hoboken, and Edgewater, which sits just south of the George Washington Bridge. Within the future five boroughs of New York City, there was a settlement at Greenwich Village, although no evidence has yet surfaced of radical poets or cool brunch places offering bottomless mimosas. Harlem, the Bronx, named after Jonas Bronck, Throg's Neck, settled by Englishman John Throckmorton, Pelham, Masbeth and Queens and Staten Island, named for the Dutch Republic's governing body. And Hutchinson and her family and servants settled in Eastchester by 1643. And that same year, a new English settlement was established at Hempstead, Long Island, as the Dutch would say. Curiously enough, the first real settlements in Brooklyn would not come until 1645. Finally, there were small settlements of Dutch and English at Stamford and Greenwich, Connecticut and along the Connecticut River. With the exception of the fortified New Amsterdam, walled off as it was at the tip of Manhattan, these new settlements of New Netherland were basically mingled with Indian villages. The opening portentous anecdote of this episode notwithstanding, in general the Dutch had lived in peace with the local indigenous peoples. There'd been a couple of nasty encounters on the Connecticut River and one early on at the first Fort Nassau way up the Hudson. But broadly speaking, the Dutch were there to trade and war was bad for business. The Dutch West India Company had been very clear on the point. New Netherland had had its successes, notwithstanding a series of weak or unwise governors. Peterman Wee, who was one of only two truly effective governors in the colony's history the other being Peter Stuyvesant, a name familiar to all New Yorkers, had been forced to resign in 1632 after losing a political dispute over the control of the fur trade and the fundamental purpose of Dutch settlement. As long-standing and attentive listeners know, he returned to Europe looking for a new gig, and by 1638 was briefly back in the New World as the founder of New Sweden. Minoui had been temporarily succeeded by his deputy, and then in 1633, Wouter van Twiller arrived. If you've been listening to this podcast all along, you will remember that van Twiller has appeared at various moments, particularly because he founded the Dutch settlements along the west bank of the Connecticut River. Those, in turn, upset the balance of power in central Connecticut and helped catalyze the English War on the Pequots. Van Twiller was arrested in 1638, apparently for enriching himself at the expense of his employer. That'll do it every time. The Dutch West India Company replaced him with the even sketchier Willem Kieft. Kieft was born in 1600 into a well-connected family in Amsterdam. We do not know a great deal about him or what he thought, because he would die at sea, and his journal and other papers would be lost. We do know that Kieft had generally failed to do what he set out to do, and along the way revealed himself to be a coward and a weasel. We don't mince words on this podcast. When somebody's a coward and a weasel, we say he's a coward and a weasel. Kieft had gotten involved in a business in France, but he ran it aground and lost his investors' money with such flair. That somebody put a picture of him over the gallows at La Rochelle, which seems to have led to Kieft getting out of town just ahead of the Loire, as we say in the French. Keefe was then put in charge of a plan to ransom Christians who'd been taken prisoner by the Sultan of the Ottomans. This he turned into a for-profit venture by paying only for the prisoners carrying low-ransom demands. According to an anti-Keeft pamphlet written after the fact, he pocketed most of the money he'd been given and left the higher price heads to rot in the Sultan's prisons. The question is, with a record like this, why would the West India Company appoint Keeft to replace Von Twiller? Russell Shorto, in his book, The Island at the Center of the World, speculates that family connections greased the skids. Sadly, with Kieft’s life cut short and the loss not only of his papers, but most records of the West India Company, we are unlikely to learn the answer. The colony that Kieft was to govern was different from the typical Dutch outpost of the time— Whether under the jurisdiction of the immensely powerful East India Company or the smaller and less successful West India Company, the Dutch were not then colonizers in the same way that the Spanish, English, and even French were. They didn't set up farms and try to live among the local people. Their objective was to trade and to avoid entanglements that might endanger that trade. If they could, they would live offshore, preferably on an island where they could fortify their warehouses. They did not bring families or go about building a society. But the area around New Amsterdam had unintentionally evolved into an actual place. There were shopkeepers and taverns and small farms and increasingly big plantations. The people were under the authority of the Dutch, and some of them actually were Dutch themselves, but New Netherland was filling up with people from all over Europe, both refugees and ambitious entrepreneurs. They actually cared about the governance of their colony because they were investing their futures into it. The directors of the West India Company in Amsterdam did not really understand this, and neither did Willem Kieft. Now let's go to Shorto. Quote, Keeft was not a politician. He arrived with a directive to turn around a failing corporate venture, and he was armed with one arrow in his quiver, total fiat, the power of life and death. Those within his jurisdiction were not constituents, but subjects, serfs. It was an accepted business model in the 17th century. In most situations in which the East and West India companies found themselves, it worked. Back to me. In other words, Kieft was interested in neither the opinions nor the happiness of the European residents of his territory, much less the Indians, and even if he had cared enough to notice, he had none of the temperament or experience of a politician. He was, in effect, a military dictator. Keeft arrived at New Amsterdam at the end of March 1638, which super attentive listeners may remember was only a couple of weeks after Peter Minwii had arrived with a Kalmar Nickel and the Gripen at the site of today's Wilmington, Delaware, and thereupon founded the colony of New Sweden on land claimed by New Netherland. Keith sent Minwii a letter demanding the Swedes depart but we correctly calculated that Kieft would not actually incur the expense and trouble of marching across New Jersey, crossing the Delaware, and attacking Fort Christina. Kieft was bluffing, partly because he had bigger problems to deal with. Fiscal problems. The fur trade was not the bounty it had been in the colony's early years, and its expenses were much higher. The ever-aggressive Mohawks in the north, now stronger because they had guns acquired in exchange for furs, were pressing down on the tribes in southern New York. The West India Company had promised protection to those tribes in addition to their own settlers and shouldered the considerable expense for soldiers at Fort Orange and Fort Amsterdam to that purpose. Keefe came up with what he thought was a nifty solution— he would tax the Indians under his notional protection to pay for his soldiers. On September 15th, 1639, he met with his powerless council of advisors and delivered the following resolution. Quote, Whereas the company is put to great expense both in building fortifications and in supporting soldiers and sailors, we have therefore resolved to demand from the Indians who dwell around here and whom heretofore we have protected against their enemies some contributions in the form of skins, maids, and wampum. And if there be any nation which is not in a friendly way disposed to make such contribution, it shall be urged to do so in the most suitable manner. Back to me. The council reacted with alarm, telling Keeft in Shorto's words, this was more or less exactly what not to do. The Europeans of New Netherland quite understood that the Indians did not see themselves as having sold their land. Rather, the Indians saw themselves in a mutual alliance and had, in a sense, granted Europeans a tendency to use as close a European notion as there is in consideration of that alliance. They believed that they had already paid for the protection they had bargained for. None of this was interesting to Keefe, who did not, as a matter of law, have to give a damn what his counsel advised, and he lacked the wisdom to listen. Now back to Shorto, quote, After being rebuffed, even laughed at, by several chiefs over his demand of protection payments, he seized on a small matter, the theft of some hogs from a Dutch farm on Staten Island, as the excuse for a punitive expedition. Even without knowing the history, one can almost see the chain of events unfolding from there. First, there were the ironies. The thieves had apparently not been Indians, but Dutchmen. The farm belonged to David de Vries, the traitor who had tried to shame Von Twiller into behaving like a leader, who was friends with many Indians, spoke several of their dialects, and who, in dinners with Keefe did his quarters in Fort Amsterdam, tried to stop what was coming. These savages resemble the Italians, DeVries warned, being very revengeful. Interjecting, it must be said that there's not a shred of evidence that DeVries was a fan of late 20th century mob movies. Back to Shorto. But Kieft was inexorable. He sent a posse to the Raritan village that his information told him was home of the thieves. Several Indians were killed. On cue, then, the Raritans attacked De Vries' farm, killing four farmhands and burning down the man's house. Keefe then took his turn. He would not, he decided, be drawn into war, but rather would adopt the classic strategy of pitting his enemies against one another. Back to me. On Thursday, July 4th, 1641, Keefe told the council that the Raritans were exhibiting more and more hostility. Taxation without representation and, of course, murder will sometimes provoke that. And that in order to induce the Indian allies of the Dutch to take up arms, he would pay a bounty of ten fathoms of wampum for each Raritan head and twenty fathoms for the heads of the Indians who attacked Staten Island. Soon enough, locals materialized with what purported to be the heads of unnamed Raritans, and Keefe was mollified. It is possible that might have been the end of it, but fate intervened. There was a kindly old wheelwright on Manhattan, a Swiss man named Klaus Svitz. He had come to New Netherland in the mid-1620s with his wife and two grown sons. Svitz had scratched out a living doing lots of things, farming leased land in Harlem, running something of a public house fixing things and, no doubt, from time to time, making wheels. Everyone on Manhattan knew him, including the Indians, many of whom Svitz knew by name. Eventually, Svitz bought a plot on the Witkwiskek Trail, which diverged from the future Broadway at roughly 23rd Street and connected New Amsterdam with farms and Indian villages up the island. land was at the future intersection of 47th Street and 2nd Avenue, a bit more than a block west of the United Nations complex. It seems to me likely that the consulate generals of Saudi Arabia and Belgium, among other buildings, sit on Switz's land. The United Nations is built on landfill. In the 1640s, it was known as Turtle Bay, and there was almost certainly a view of the water from Switz's house. It became a popular gathering spot and, it should be said, watering hole for people of all nationalities schlepping up and down the trail. So it's perhaps a bit poetic that the United Nations was built in view of Spitz's house. One day in August 1641, Spitz opened his door to find a 27 year old Wickwesquec Indian. That's tough to say. The man had furs and was interested in trading them for duffel cloth. Now let's go back to Shorto, quote, Klaus knew the young man. He had lived in a village to the northeast of the island and had worked for a time for Klaus's son. The wheelwright invited him in out of the August sun and gave him something to eat and drink. And as the old man bent over the chest in which he kept his goods for trade, the young Wickwiskek, who is unnamed in the records, which is unfortunate because he was at the center of what would become a major event in the life of the colony, in a seemingly unpremeditated act, reached for an axe that Klaus Spitz had leaning against the wall, raised it high, and cut off the old man's head. Then he left. Back to me. It will come as a surprise only to the least attentive among you, or those who cannot do arithmetic, that the ax murderer in question was the young boy who had been the sole Indian survivor of that violent encounter back in 1626. We do not know why the Indian chose that moment to exact revenge for his uncle's murder. Svitz had had no role in the original fight, but the consequences would be dire word of the killing spread fast. Willem Kieft saw it as a pretext to do what he probably wanted to do all along, push the Indians out of the greater New Amsterdam area. Switz's reputation had been such that Kieft thought he could build popular support for a wider war. He asked the residents to nominate a council of 12 men to advise him. Unfortunately for Kieft, the 12 chose as their leader, David DeVries, the same man who lost his house when Keefe had used the alleged theft of his pigs to justify going after the Raritans. Keefe asked the assembly to respond to three questions. Quote, "'Whether it is not just to punish the barbarous murder "'of Klaus Svitz, committed by an Indian, "'and in the case the Indians refused to surrender "'the murderer at our request, "'whether it is not justifiable to ruin the entire village "'to which he belongs.'" Two, in what manner the same ought to be put into effect and at what time? Three, by whom may it be undertaken? Back to me. Much to Keefe's annoyance, the 12 opposed war and proposed a diplomatic solution. They suggested a deputation to go to the Wickwiskeks, still a mouthful, and asked them to surrender the murderer by, quote, a friendly request. If war were inevitable, they proposed the colony first send for 200 coats of chain mail from Amsterdam, knowing that would take months and would at least implicitly alert the West India Company's directors that things were unraveling. Finally, the 12 proposed that Keefe himself lead any expedition. This was actually both provocative and funny, because Keith had been so concerned about his personal safety that he'd not spent a single night outside of Ford Amsterdam in the more than three years he'd been in the colony. He was widely thought to be a coward. So, naturally, Keith dissolved the first ever representative body to sit in what would become New York State. He began the war without the popular support he had sought, and so it would thereafter bear his name. The written record of the war is sparse. There were four narratives of the Pequot War written by men who had fought in it, but no such account of Kieft's war survives. There's a partial account by David de Vries who would write his version after the fact, when it had turned out to be the disaster he had predicted and when Willem Kieft was no longer alive to defend himself. That does not, however, make de Vries wrong. There were also plenty of English now in the area, and news from their letters back to Boston often made its way into the journal of John Winthrop, who reported what he learned of Kieft's war. The most notorious fighting began on the night of February 23, 1643, now a year and a half after Svit's beheading. Soldiers were assembled in Fort Amsterdam, and David de Vries sat at dinner with Kieft trying to talk him out of the imminent attack. Let this work alone, DeVries said. You will also murder our own nation, for there are none of the settlers in the open country who are aware of it. Keeft would have none of it and ordered two nighttime attacks, one on Indians camped at Pavonia, the site of today's Jersey City, and the other at Corlaire's Hook on the East River, a spot of land just below the Williamsburg Bridge. The thing is, the Indians encamped at both places had moved there because they were being harassed by the Mohawks in the north. They were actually refugees. They believed the Dutch would protect them as had been promised. Instead, they were betrayed. Now let's go to Short Oak, quote, De Vries stayed in the director's quarters that night, sitting up all night by the kitchen hearth, watching the blaze and waiting. Around midnight, quote, I heard a great shrieking. And I ran to the ramparts of the fort and looked over to Pavonia, saw nothing but firing and heard the shrieks of the natives murdered in their sleep. Interjection. Well it seems inconceivable today that one could hear a scream in Jersey City from Lower Manhattan. Then the world was vastly more quiet, almost silent, with only a few hundred people on each side of the Hudson and no machinery in either place. The screams would have very clearly carried across the open water. Back to Shorto. Shortly after, an Indian couple, whom De Vries knew, appeared inexplicably inside the fort. They'd managed to flee the massacre, which in the confusion they thought was being done by Mohawks. De Vries had told them it was Dutchmen who were annihilating their makeshift village and that Fort Amsterdam was the last place they should have come for refuge. He helped them escape into the woods. In the morning, De Vries heard the returned soldiers boasting that they had massacred or murdered 80 Indians and considering they had done a deed of Roman valor in murdering so many in their sleep. Apparently even Dutchmen back in the 17th century thought of the Roman Empire from time to time. De Vries then repeated in his journal an account of the massacre that later appeared in a pamphlet published in the Dutch Republic, written by anonymous inhabitants of the colony in hopes of stirring their countrymen to the abuse of power taking place in the North American colony. If you have young children in the car, now might be a time to pause the podcast. Infants were torn from their mother's breasts and hacked to pieces in the presence of their parents. And the pieces thrown into the fire and in the water and other sucklings being bound to small boards were cut, stuck and pierced and miserably massacred in a manner to move a heart of stone. Some were thrown into the river and when the fathers and mothers endeavored to save them, The soldiers would not let them come on land, but made both parents and children drown. Some came to our people in the country with their hands, some with their legs cut off, and some holding their entrails in their arms, and others had such horrible cuts and gashes that worse than they were could never happen. And these poor simple creatures, as also many of our own people, did not know any better that they'd been attacked by a party of other Indians, the Mohawks. After this exploit, the soldiers were rewarded for their services and Director Keefe thanked them by taking them by the hand and congratulating them. Back to me. The massacres at Pavonia and Corler's Hook did what war so often does. It unified the tribes on and around Manhattan against the Dutch. The Canarsies of, not surprisingly, Canarsie, led by a sachem named Pennewitz, which, you have to admit, sounds almost appropriately Jewish, rounded up local tribes and attacked Dutch settlements on Long Island. There were other small-scale attacks all over the region. Then in the spring and summer of 1643, there was a short ceasefire fire so that both sides could plant their fields and gardens. Super attentive listeners will recall that it was in the spring of 1643 that Roger Williams passed through New Amsterdam on his way to London to obtain a charter for Providence and Rhode Island. John Winthrop had recorded that Williams had helped broker a partial peace while he was in the colony. Nearly as I can tell, that was the 1643 ceasefire. After the truce expired, various tribes in today's Westchester made common cause with the Long Island tribes and attacked Dutch farms and settlements without quarter. They had learned European-style total war and were bringing it home to the Dutch. Keefe's belligerents had taught the Indians the same lesson that Opa in Virginia had learned, that the Europeans needed to be pushed out. In August 1643, John Throckmorton's family was burned alive. At the same time, perhaps the very same day, the Siwanois murdered all but one member of Anne Hutchinson's household in today's Eastchester, in the area named after Jonas Bronck. Of course, long standing and attentive listeners know that from our third episode on Mrs. Hutchinson. John Winthrop was watching from Boston. Now to Catherine Grangine, author of The Long Wake of the Pequot War, quoting Winthrop. There fell out hot wars between the Dutch and the Indians, he wrote for June 1643. Upon this, the Indians burnt diverse of their farmhouses and their cattle in them and slew all they could meet with. Such implacable fury drove the Indians against the Dutch, wrote Winthrop, that the beleaguered Keeft and his few supporters were soon trapped in Fort Amsterdam, left simply to eat up their cattle, Sometimes Winthrop kept count of the Dutch deaths. Back to me. After the Pequot War of 1636 to 38, English veterans had returned to civilian life. Some were more successful than others. A few were so affected by the violence they had seen and inflicted that they no longer lived comfortably at home in the confined Puritan world of the Massachusetts Bay. Some of them had headed west to the far more open society of New Netherland. One of those was John Underhill, who'd been born in the Netherlands to English parents and had married a Dutch woman. Underhill, you will recall, was an experienced soldier. He had come to New England in 1630 with the Winthrop fleet and was hired as the captain of the Bay Colony's militia. He had led the English in the savage Pequot War. Now Keefe turned to him for help. Back to Catherine Grangine, quote Over the winter of 1644, Underhill then led two major expeditions against the Indians surrounding New Amsterdam one on western Long Island, claiming roughly 120 Indian lives, and a second into the hills north of Stamford. The latter was an unmistakable reprise of Underhill's work at Mystic in 1637. After a day's march northwest from Greenwich through thick snow, Underhill's men came upon a cluster of wigwams. Repeating measures used against the Pequots, they set fire to the wigwams and blocked their inhabitants from escaping. Perhaps 500 Indians died. Back to me. As spring sprung in 1645, both sides were exhausted by war. The Long Island and Westchester tribes sent a deputation to New Amsterdam, and they were well-received. Peace was agreed. Neither the Dutch nor the local Indians would carry weapons near the settlements of the other. And both sides in the war negotiated trade agreements with the Mohawks, who for the time being were the unintended beneficiaries of Keefe's war. In some respects, the settlement of Keefe's war reinstated the status quo ante, and others, the world of New Netherland had changed. Willem Kieft was recalled to New Amsterdam to account for his war to the directors of the West India Company. He would perish on the ocean and so would never have to explain himself or have the opportunity to defend himself. The population of New Netherland had declined sharply, less because of casualties than because so many farmers and other Europeans had seen the work of years destroyed. So they went home the demographic advantage of the English had increased substantially. In 2005, a University of Richmond student named Nicholas Kleber wrote an honors thesis on Keefe's war, which is available online. His paragraph on the outcome of the Algonquin tribes in the region is pretty good. Quote, No longer was New Netherland society two separate entities, with the Dutch and native groups only sharing the bonds of trade and geographic proximity. Now the Dutch were in control of the decimated Indian population in and around Manhattan. In the coming decades, the natives would use Dutch courts to settle both intertribal disputes and colonist-native conflict. The Dutch would heavily regulate land transactions, lessening the likelihood of future disputes. Peter Stuyvesant, the next governor, would treat the natives diplomatically, dissolving a murder by accepting restitution from the wary tribe in the fashion of Algonquin custom. From the native side, as their land quickly changed hands, they found themselves becoming traders, workers in New Amsterdam, and whalers on Long Island. A few continued to live in the old way, adhering to traditional native culture, but most accepted the jurisdiction of the Dutch and later the English, in turn either becoming useful in the society or moving to areas as yet untouched by white people. The Pequot War and Keefe's War created a situation where being Indian, in the pre-contact sense, was simply untenable. Back to me, we are done with Keefe's war, except for a brief story with genealogical implications, at least for me. It is easy to imagine that the war was all-consuming during these years, because that is how state war is waged in our time. It is almost harder to picture the reality. The day-to-day life went on for anybody who had not been burned out of their farm or village when violence did erupt. Russell Shorto devotes a page to all the ordinary things people did. They started businesses, built houses, contracted for carriage, and brought lawsuits. Among them, Governor Keefe engaged John and Richard Ogden, stonemasons of the tiny settlement of Stamford, to build a church inside Fort Amsterdam. As it happens, Ogden was my grandmother's maiden name, and my cousin Tim confirmed that John Ogden was our eighth great-grandfather. He sent me a passage from an old book about the Ogdens that describes the project. Quote, a contract was drawn up in May 1642, setting forth an agreement between Governor Willem Kieft, Gisbard Op Dick, and Thomas Willett of New Amsterdam, Church wardens to build a stone church in the fort, 72 feet by 50 feet, and 16 feet above the soil, for the sum of 2,500 guilders, about a thousand dollars, to be paid in cash, beaver, or other merchandise. If the work was done in a workmanlike manner, a hundred extra guilders were to be paid the contractors. It is stipulated that the latter should be allowed to use the company's boat to ferry the stone ashore near the fort, the wardens agreeing to carry the stone from the shore to the fort, and to furnish the lime with which to lay them. There were objectors to the project who claimed that Carrick would occupy one-fourth of the fort area and shut off the southeast wind of the gristmill upon which the settlers depended for the grinding of their corn. Folks... NIMBYs aren't new. The Indian Wars retarded the building of the church, which was not finished in 1645. But in due time, the steep double-pointed roof arose over the walls of the fort. Back to me. That church, built by my distant grandfather, would stand for 145 years, until 1789, when Fort Amsterdam, long since renamed Fort George, was demolished to make room for the government house, which was built to be the executive mansion for George Washington. He never occupied it because the federal government moved to Philadelphia. But it did serve as the home of two governors of New York State before it was demolished in 1815. That's a great place to stop right now. Thank you again for listening. You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on Twitter and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.